Welcome back, guys. We're back with another episode, and I'm really excited to be interviewing someone who is who's absolutely brilliant today, uh, one of the best in his field. I'll go ahead and give you a little introduction. Dr. Gary Habermas is an American historian, philosopher, and apologist who's dedicated his life to examining the resurrection of Jesus Christ through various aspects of scholarship. He's the author and editor of over 40 books, which 18 of which are focused on the resurrection. He's been an adjunct professor at 15 different schools over his 40 years of college-level teaching and is widely regarded as the world's leading authority on today's topic, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dr. Gary Habermas, how are you? I'm doing fine, Addison. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. So we'll, we'll go ahead and dive, dive right in. But first, you know, I got to ask you how, how you're doing during quarantine. I know when we talked about arranging this, you said you're on week seven of lockdown. Actually, let me check. I got my calendar right here. Um, I am on week eight as of yesterday. Okay. Wow. Week, I, I finished week eight yesterday. Wow. Wow. That's. And I love it. Yeah. A lot of. I'm very happy because I can stay here and I have a lot of due dates and I write, 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 write. Yeah. Are you, I, last, I was watching an interview getting ready for this that you did. Um, I, the name escapes me of who it was, but you, I think back in October, you were writing a, a 5,000 page book. You were in the 4,000 page range. Are you still working on that book? I am. I'm on the last chapter. The, last it has been, the project has taken uh, six and a half years. Wow. That's amazing. Can we expect a, a, a release date in the next few years? A few years, that's the key. A lot of people say, oh, you're in the last chapter, so it's coming out in two months, right? Yeah, no. Long no, it's going to take me a year even to edit, so I'm not, you wow. know, the first draft is the first step, but there's a lot more steps, so. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I also know that as, as far as I can remember, you know, you've written and edited over 40 books, and, a lot, and this, this book that you're working on now has very minimal uh, very minimal focus on any of the topics you've written on in the past. Is that is that correct? Yeah, of those, well, you mentioned 18. Um, of the 40, whatever it is, 40-something books, uh, 22 or 23 are in the resurrection. But here's the key. Of all those other books, people might think, well, he's got 22 books in the resurrection. So he's probably just re rebooting some of that stuff. Actually, I've only used 100 pages from those 23 i've only used the material in 100 pages all the rest is new material wow that's that's pretty remarkable uh we'll we'll go ahead and get and get right into the topic which is the resurrection of jesus and you know something that i've gathered is that most people whether they're islamist buddhist or even atheist don't deny the existence of jesus they don't deny that he was a real person islamists and, and buddhists would say that he was a prophet or a, or a, or a good teacher uh, at the most, atheists might might refer to him as a respected historical figure. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a good way to start off the conversation because most people can agree that he he at least exists. Is that something that you you find? Yeah, uh, the well-known atheist New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book, "Did Jesus Exist?" It's aimed at those who think Jesus never lived, and he tells them he's quite straight. He's a you know, shooting straight with them. And he tells them that that their group, those who deny the existence of Jesus, he says, you know, you guys aren't very well trained. He actually says this in the book. He says, uh, 
people who deny the historicity of Jesus are not very well trained. And he said, uh, only a few in your number have terminal degrees in a relevant field. And he said, to my knowledge, nobody who holds that position holds a university, college, or accredited seminary position. So, you know, there are a lot of people who hold that, but but the people who hold it and the scholars who research it are usually two different groups of people. Hmm. That's 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 really interesting. You know, you there's I've I've watched plenty of debates between you know you and and atheists that you that you've debated and and it's it's pretty remarkable to see kind of the the just the powerhouse of intellect that you both share. But how you know I've heard I've heard some scholars say that you know when they went through college they that all the smart people believed in God and the smartest people, the cream of the crop believed uh, were Christians. You know, a lot of plenty of people believed in the existence of God, but I've, I've heard that a lot of people for them that they've seen the vast majority of the, the smartest people in their, in their college fields have all believed, have all been Christian or Catholic. So it's something that's really interesting that I find really interesting, but on the note of the resurrection, probably your, your, most well-known argument that you have put forth is your minim minimalist facts. And these are facts that, that everyone accepts, whether they're atheist, Buddhist, Islamist. These are facts about Jesus's life that you say are, are that you have to accept to, in order to, to carry on the conversation. So describe the minimalist facts for us. Well, the argument is that if you take only the data that specialist scholars accept. Now, I want to explain that because it's it refers to the group that you just asked about to be a to be counted in this thing that I'm doing uh, you have to have a you have to be a published scholar or terminal degree something in a relevant field which would be New Testament theology religions comparative religion uh, you don't have to be a Christian a comparative religion you can be an atheist agnostic skeptic you just have to be trained in that area. Archaeology, classics, these are all areas where people who are trained in those areas would have input because of their training. And if you only ask those people, um, the ones who have written and studied, scholars in other words, that's my definition for critical scholar. If you ask the critical scholars, they're going to concede a certain amount of information which, you know, it depends how many facts you use, but I use uh, about a half dozen facts. I use a longer list of 12, then I shrink it to six. And I argue that these, sac these uh, six facts are accepted by virtually every uh, relevant scholar in the field accepts. And with those facts alone, you have enough of a basis to argue that Jesus uh, was raised from the dead. And hopefully it's to argue well that Jesus was raised from the dead. Right. So. Yeah, and, and and we'll dive we'll dive more into a few of those those facts here in a minute. But I want to I think it's important first to talk about some of the things that we can debunk in order to to proceed with the conversation. There's a lot of theories about the resurrection of Jesus: the swoon theory, hallucination theory, impersonation theory, um, the the stolen body theory might be one of the most popular ones. So, are there any of those theories that have that have hold any water to them or any validity to them or by now have you kind of seen them be developed well, the one you mentioned there you said stolen body is a popular one well 
it may be popular with people who think Jesus doesn't live and they're, they're not like in the field, but that view, that there's an example of how rough it's been for theories. The fact that uh, people who claim that disciples stole the body, for now they're not the only ones that could have stolen the body according to these folks, but if you say the disciples stole the body, you have to look very, very hard to find virtually any scholars who've held that theory for over 200 years. Wow. So the problem with that is the, the, the guys you implicate, the disciples, the ones you say perpetrated the lie, the fraud, it's often called the fraud theory. The, the ones who said, uh, I saw the risen Jesus, and they didn't, and they knew they didn't. The problem is you're implicating the guys who were willing. You can't prove all of them gave their lives for it, but they were willing to die. You say, well, how do you know somebody's willing to die? Because they kept going into the line of fire, so to speak. You know, Paul, in the, in the epistles that critics, atheist New Testament scholars accept from the pen of the apostle Paul, Paul gives us several lists of everything that happened to him, uh, stoned and left for dead, uh, given 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes many times. Uh, and he was, you know, according to most scholars, he was believed to be martyred. The fact that he would keep walking into the lion's den, so to speak, where those things happen, show you that he's willing to die. And to implicate the guys that are willing to die by saying they stole the body and lied, those two don't go together very well. And and uh, in a debate that I was watching with you and uh, Dr. Anthony Flew, I believe it was. Right. He told you that he said in, in that that you know there's there's evidence we can accept that that Jesus died and we can accept that there was an empty tomb. And he said, but I think one of the uh, one of the things that he brought up was, can we be certain that he was put there in the first place, that he was put in the tomb to start with? Yeah, now that's not a stolen body theory. That's a where was he buried theory. So you have, you have the key questions here, you know, that he's, he goes on trial. He claims that, that um, what he says in Mark 14, 61 to 64, which is a pretty well accredited. See, critics will let you use a lot of New Testament texts. You just have to use the ones that have backup for them. And Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, Son of God, sitting on the right hand of God. He got in trouble for it. He was crucified. And then you have to ask, secondly, was he buried? You have to ask, thirdly, was the place he was buried later found to be empty? And then you have to ask, what was he doing all this time? If the tomb was empty, if he was buried in a tomb and the tomb was empty, did he did he then appear to his to his uh, followers and or others? So that's kind of the steps you have to go through. And of course, if a person says he wasn't put in the tomb in the first place, that's different than saying somebody stole the body. Right. But as far as as far as somebody who would say, let's take maybe the most common one there, the view that says. Yeah, but crucifixion victims were kind of losers, and they were often, their bodies were taken down or left on the cross to be eaten by birds and animals, and or they were taken down and thrown into a common pit, maybe into the garbage heap in, in Jerusalem. Uh, that kind of view, Josephus, the ancient historian who wrote in the first century, tells us that even, even 
persons who are punished by capital punishment that Jews still thought highly enough of the human body that they buried, I'm not saying there's never any exceptions, but they buried the bodies of those who were killed, you know, for capital punishment. So even crucifixion victims were buried. In fact, we have now, uh, the number's up to about two or three crucifixion victims whose bones have been discovered. Hmm. And, and, you know, speaking of, you know, talking about the crucifixion, you, you talked about, you, you've mentioned before about the, the physical effects that hanging on the cross has, how, right. how you know, if, if it is true that Jesus was crucified on the cross, we can be certain he died because of some of the, the physical ramifications that happen while you're, while you're up there. Describe that to us. Right. Well, so, you know, people who want to question various aspects might say, all right, so you got a centurion out there, and uh, the Roman guard is standing at the cross, and something happens, and they, their job is to make sure he's dead. Uh, where did this guy get his medical degree? And uh, did they have an EKG or an EEG? Do they know his brain wasn't working? What's going on? Well, the most common medical explanation. Now, there are, there are a number of medical explanations for how you die on the cross, but by far, the most common one. In fact, I have said in print that this one might be as common as all the other ones put together. But the most common view is that when you die by crucifixion, you essentially die by asphyxiation. And there have even been experiments in uh, uh, Germany <clears throat> during World War II, thereabouts, right afterwards. Also, there have been Middle Eastern crucifixions in, the, in recent years. But in the experiments in particular, in one experiment, when, when people hung down in a, in a uh, downward position, you could even tie them. It, the descriptions always say, virtually always say nails, but that's not crucial. If you tie a person, in this experiment in Germany, uh, male volunteers were tied to two by fours suspended from the ceiling. And the, the volunteers, passed out in a maximum of 12 minutes. Now you might say, well, Jesus was on the cross for six hours, right? Well, according to the Gospels. And that wasn't, to be, that wasn't a real long time, right? Because Pilate was surprised it was over so quickly. Okay, true. Um, then how could these guys pass out in 12 minutes? Because in the experiments, their feet were not uh, tied down or nailed to anything. Of course, they didn't use nails at all in experiments. But if, you're, if your feet are nailed or tied, you can keep pushing up. And as, when you push up, you free the intercostal pectoral deltoid muscles, the same muscles you work out in a gym. You free those muscles around your lungs, and you can decreasingly, you are unable to exhale. You can inhale. I mean, you know, not being able to exhale, you may as well not be able to inhale because you can't take any more oxygen and you have carbon dioxide. And so death by asphyxiation is the commonly thought of view. Um, then, of course, there's that matter of the spear wound. And someone might say, well, that's only in the Gospel of John. How do you know you're stabbed by a spear? We have Roman examples of bodies being pierced. It's sort of like, it's sort of like the centurion saying, uh, not on my watch, you don't. You're not getting down while well, I'm boss here. And, and if he's already dead, okay, time out. How do you know he's dead? because he's hanging in the low position on the cross. He's not pushing up. 
And you'd say those, if these guys are passing out in 12 minutes, they, they could be dead, say, in a half hour. So how would you know? Well, he's low on the cross. What do you do? You stab him. You make sure. There, there's other things that were done. One time on, in an ancient case of crucifixion, they crushed the guy's skull to make sure he was dead. Um, one guy was threatened with a bow and arrow. So there were other things they did. But breaking ankles is a way the job was done. Piercing the body was a way the job was done. By the way, Jesus didn't have his ankles broken. But the fact that they broke ankles to me, indicates that asphyxiation is what's going on. If you break ankles, you can't push up, and you're right back down to that bottom of the cross. But the, the main problem with, asphyxia, uh, with the swoon theory or the apparent death theory is a critique that was uh, answered by a guy named uh, David Strauss, the liberal, very liberal. He died in the 1870s, and he, he was a very disillusioned German liberal, he gave up his belief in God and the afterlife when he died. And, but he gave the most famous critique of the swoon theory. And he said, the problem with the swoon theory is if Jesus did not die on the cross, the main problem is he would be alive. Yes. Christians might even claim that's an answer to prayer. Yes. God spared him. Yes. There's all kinds of cases where people have been hurt. Paul, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Okay. So maybe Jesus was just overlooked, and that's the miracle. He was, you know, he nursed back to health. David Strauss says that's the problem, because if you, the early church, if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. So if Jesus was nursed back to health, they could thank the Lord for not letting him get killed, but they couldn't, in David Strauss's words, you wouldn't proclaim him the crucified and risen Lord of life. So the apparent death theory contradicts resurrection. So those are the main reasons, death by asphyxiation, what was the spear wound, bro broken ankles, and how could he have convinced anybody he was raised from the dead? Long answer, sorry about that, but, oh, but uh, and there aren't very many takers today either on, on crucifixion. Now, um, uh, you hear it sometimes, but not, again, not from the specialists in the field, not from people who specialize in this, the history of this time, or New Testament, or theology, or world, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and that kind of leans nicely into something I wanted to wanted to touch on, you know, talking about the swoon theory and how the resurrection is necessary for, you know, for Christianity, which is, right. I want to touch on near-death experiences, something else that you're, you're very versed in. You've talked about the empirical evidence and the data for these that support the case for the afterlife. And, you know, since afterlife is essential to the resurrection, can you touch on this a little bit for us? How, sure. how does it provide support for the resurrection? Yeah. Um... Uh, let me let me just finish off that. I just thought about something on, on the swoon thing. Uh, again, the fact that he's dead is a conclusion of hanging low on the cross, according to most. But the fact that he was in good shape, that he rose as someone who proclaims. See, Jesus made unique claims that are un, unparalleled in history of religions. He claimed he's the only founder of a major world religion to claim to be deity. He's the only founder of a major world religion who said, what you do with me, whether you're committed to me, determines where you spend eternity. So he brought this sort of thing to the table. And the reason life after death comes in there is that if he is talking about what you do with me determines where you spend eternity, what's eternity got to do with your message? Well, Jesus taught an afterlife. In fact, he took the normal Jewish view of the resurrection of the body. There's definitely a change. If you got a mole on your forehead, doesn't mean you're going to have a mole on your forehead in the resurrection. 
there are changes, but the body is transformed, and but still a body. And if Jesus believes in an afterlife, it really helps his argument if he's been there. It, it really helps his argument if he was raised. So when people say, yeah, you believe in another world, you not only have a resurrection, you've got to have heaven, you've got to have Narnia, you've got to have Middle Earth, you've got to have Oz, you know, you've got to have the Emerald City, you've got to have something like that. And that's when I go, okay, time out. Let's talk about near-death experiences, because it's an entirely secular, scientific, it's not a Christian argument by any means. It's like intelligent design, use another example. These are data that indicate a God, uh, ethics would be another example, afterlife would be another example. If there's an afterlife, then Jesus is teaching that he's the path. He's talking about a realm that we already know to be there, if indeed there's evidence for it. So that's how near-death experiences come in. And, and you know, one of the minimalist arguments that you put forward, you, says, you say it's not as widely accepted, which is that the, the tomb in which Jesus was buried was empty days later. Why, what is the strongest argument for that, and why is it not as widely accepted? Well, okay, well, let me correct one thing. Um, I use a list of 12, and then I shorten the list to six. The empty tomb is in my list of 12, but it didn't make my list of six. I mean, if people, if any of your listeners are, say, sports fans, football fans, baseball, football, whatever, you can have a guy who is a pro player, but he's not an all-star. And you have your team, and then you've got an all-star team with all the best. So I've got a team with, with 12 uh, facts that I use. But if someone says, what are your strongest ones? I go for the all-stars. So I cut it down to six. Now, there are two prerequisites to be a minimal fact. One is, I will not use any fact that is not evidenced by a bunch of other facts. For, for example, you ask about crucifixion. And I said, well, you've got asphyxiation, you've got a spear wound, you've got nails and complications from that, um, you've got broken ankles, which indicate asphyxiation. The reason nails are important, nails aren't going aren't to kill you, but the reason nails are important is that you're not going to walk on those feet three days later. You're not going to walk for a quarter of a mile where the disciples are, wherever they were. You're not going to walk blocks away. And so all these things are arguments that say he a was dead, he was crucified, dead, and not in any shape to convince him he was raised from dead. So those are facts that all come together to tell you that Jesus died on the cross. Well, each of the minimal facts has a bunch of facts that come together to establish that. The second requirement is that critics have to accept the fact. And the half dozen facts that I use are accepted by say 95%. I mean, it's a very high percentage of the scholars. Now, back to the empty tomb. It makes the first criterion. There's more evidence for the, there's more evidence for the empty tomb than there is for almost any other of the six facts. It's not one of the six, but I often call it six plus one. The empty tomb gets halfway there, but it's a more important one because it's more important that there's more evidences for it than it is that people like it, that people think it's historical. So there's a lot of good evidence for the empty tomb. Now, if you want me to, I can list a few of those if you want me to, evidences for the empty tomb. Absolutely, yeah. Want me to go there? Okay. Well, this is according to critical scholars now. According to critics, 
the most impressive argument for the empty tomb is the fact that the women were witnesses. Now, you have to picture why that, that's big. Four presumably men writing the Gospels, they are stationed around the Mediterranean in different locations. Now, you know, we can't die for tradition, but according to early tradition, John is written from Ephesus, Mark is written from, I'm talking about gospel names now, we'd have to talk about the gospel writers separately, but John is written from Ephesus, Mark is written from Rome, there's a long way between Ephesus and the eastern end of the Mediterranean and Rome. These guys weren't looking over each other's shoulders. I don't get your article in the paper today, and I write one just like it, and don't put your name on it, put my name on it. You know, they didn't, they didn't have, you know, they couldn't go down to the bookstore. So the question is, how did four writers tell the story of the empty tomb? Pretty closely aligned there, but they all say women found the tomb empty. Now, that's counterproductive because women were, it's not true to say they couldn't testify in a court of law. They could, but they weren't very well accepted. There was like an inverse relation between women testimony being accepted and how important the case was, or maybe they're the only witnesses. And you know, something else, Luke and John both tell us with separate sources that men went to the tomb. Men also went to the tomb, and Luke and John are using separate sources, according to the scholars. Why, if you want to be better accepted, why not tell your story like this? Yeah, Easter Sunday morning came, and some of our disciples went to the tomb. The apostles went to the tomb. That would sound far better. They could have started there, and it was a fact, but they didn't. They started with the women, because the women came first. In other words, they did it because it's true. Uh, an equally good argument, just as good as the women, is that if you're going to proclaim the resurrection, go to Rome and say it, say it. Go to Ephesus and say it. Go to Alexandria and say it. Go to Athens and say it. No one's going to get on a ship and go back to Jerusalem, try to find the tomb and see if it's empty. But if you proclaim the tomb is empty in Jerusalem, you could take a Sunday walk to the tomb, and the New Testament doesn't say, yeah, there was another body in there, but it was too badly decomposed. We couldn't tell it was Jesus. That's not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says the tomb was empty. If there was a body, Christians lose. So the tomb had to be empty, and you could, you could, you could be an unbeliever and affirm that right away. Hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you one more and see if you want any more than that. Uh, scholars believe that there's about five independent evidences for the empty tomb, at least five. There are more than that. In the ancient world, five separate sources for something is a lot. I mean, we have, we have founders of religions and major historical figures who have less sources than that, and nobody argues about them. I mean, the main source for Alexander the Great biography was almost 300 years later. And the best sources for Alexander are Plutarch and Arian at plus four and a quarter to plus 450. That's almost a half a millennium. So if you have five sources from, you know, just a, a, well, if you want to go to the Gospel of Mark, you're going to go about uh, 35 years, 40 years. And we have earlier sources than that, by the way. Even critics admit there's earlier sources. So there are early sources, and the sources are independent from each other. There's four reasons right there. And I, I want to get your thoughts on, on 
a little bit more about his his bodily burial in the tomb. One piece of evidence that is that is used a lot lately, and you can tell me how much how much you believe or maybe don't believe this, or how you may be critical of it, is the Shroud of Turin. Uh, de yeah. Describe a little bit about uh, get get people a little caught up who may not know what that is, and if you if you find it convincing or not. I I'll tell you the second part first. I find it fairly convincing. I think there's some things that have to be worked out. But actually, I've co-authored two books on the Shroud of Turin, and my co-author Ken Stevenson was the editor and spokesman for the famous team of scientists that did the Shroud investigation in 1978. They uh, spent days investigating the shroud, taking thousands of photographs, infrared, ultraviolet, doing all kinds of tests. And uh, the argument for the shroud is, is well, let's put it this way. If you believe the Gospels, there's a shroud. All a shroud is, is a, um, in this case, a linen cloth, a burial cloth. It's reported in the Gospel of Luke, it's reported in the Gospel of John. You can you know, a person can accept that or reject that. But what I mean is there, there is a source, there are sources for it. And the question is not, was there a shroud, but was this shroud the one that covered Jesus? And the evidence is pretty incredible. In fact, if the, the latest thing that's catching the news right now, I get, I get articles every day from people that send them to me. The latest news is that the carbon-14 date of 1988 has been kind of blown up because they're not saying so much the carbon dating is is um is uh, well i have to watch my words here it's not so much they're saying we can date it to the first century although there are indications there is there are other there's actually been another test that that uh takes it to the first century presumably, and there's a not, still another one that goes to the first century plus or minus a couple hundred years. But the carbon-14, the problem with it is not that the, is that we, is that we all know the date. The problem is that the date they got, Middle Ages, they got to it by applying, let's put it this way, the guys were good in carbon-14 testing, they were not so good in statistics. And the latest theory, this just came out last October, that by the Freedom of Information Act, they turned over all their dates from the three labs that did the testing. And the dates are all over the place. Now, when your dates are all over the place, um, maybe a century or two or three centuries apart, when the dates are all over the place, you don't say, oh, well, look, we've got some funny dates. Let's, aver let's average these. That's not what you do. When the dates are all over the place, you have to retest because it's an anomalous example. If if you know if you took the same spot and it comes out hundreds of years apart, maybe if you took a bunch of spots, you would get a bunch of dates. But if you take one spot, something's up in the air. I don't mean it's fake. I don't mean it's fishy. I don't mean anything like that. I just mean you can't average those dates. You have to get more you have to get the dates closer together and they did not get that. But that didn't come out until last October. It's been published, interestingly enough, this new research has been published in an Oxford University journal. And if I understand the story correctly, the editor of that journal is one of the main proponents of the ADA carbon 14. In other words, he was allowing an article that was critical of his own 
work. Now, that's if I understand the story correctly, but it was published in an Oxford journal, journal called Archaeochemistry, a, a prestigious, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the scientific journal. And, you know, the shroud, it's, I believe it's 14 foot long. It wraps around the head, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. It goes over the front of the body and the back of the body, but not so much on the sides. And yeah. I, I had read where they had done, they had done a three, they had printed a 3D model of a replication of, of Jesus by their, by their best estimations. I've seen, I've seen the 3D model. Now, one thing I want to be clear, it was in Ken's living room. When I, when I flew down, he doesn't live there now, but when I flew down to uh, New Orleans to, uh, to put our halves of the book together, I went into his living room and this thing was leaning up against his wall. It's not, it's not an artist's conception. It is the actual printout of the 3D, like if you get a graph and you get highs and lows, it's a printout of the cardboard readout from the 3D. So you see the bridge of the nose, you see the, it's not a, you know what I mean? It's not a, any kind of artistic whatever. It's the body image for what was under the cloth. And 3D is one of the very hardest things to explain in the shroud. Um, we don't have we don't have photos that are 3D, but the shroud fo photos of the shroud are 3D. It's it's amazing how how technology can can do that. It's yeah. really and this is 78. This is 1978. So things have come a long way since then. But um, yeah, I don't say the shroud has to be or it's proven. I'll make some shroud people maybe bothered when I say that. I don't think it has to be. If if somebody comes up with an alternate that can be substantiated, if you can, but see, there's no, there's no paint, dye, powder, there's no foreign substance on the cloth that can cause that image. In other words, there are things on the cloth. There are insect parts, there's pollens. When the shroud goes on display, you know, the wind's blowing and it's been outside and, and things are there but nothing in the image that causes the image. The image is a mark on a cloth, like, um, you know, uh, when I get my coffee in the morning, sometimes I lay my coffee on the counter, and when I pick it up, there's a ring underneath it from where the coffee's come down, right? And on the shroud, it's something on the cloth, but it's not like, it's not like coffee, or it's not paint, or it's not powder, because it's, the image was not formed by another kind of substance getting onto the cloth. They, they checked that thoroughly. And so when you go to fake it, you gotta fake it without paint, without dye, without powder, without, you know, there's just so many other reasons too to believe. From what we know now, it doesn't look like the shroud is fake, but I don't think we could say, you know, nobody would ever be able to do that. But there've been dozens of efforts, if not more, and uh, they're not making the grade. And this has been going on for a long time. It's been going on since the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. So we've, we've, we've talked about your minimalist arguments. We've talked about the Shroud of Turin. I want to talk about C.S. Lewis's trilemma, uh, which, yeah. is, which is really commonly used, that, that Jesus was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He either lied about being the Son of God, he was crazy and thought he was the Son of God, or he was who he said he was. Uh, there's been a lot of critics about about that argument. Do you find it to be a sound, a compelling argument, or is there some things that Lewis missed out on? Yeah, I'm not crazy about the trilemma, but but I think it can be rejuvenated. <laughs> um, as a number of critics have said to Lewis, 
in order, he okay, so he's a liar, thought he was God, but wasn't. He's a lunatic, that's even worse, thought he was God. Actually, the first one, he wouldn't think he was God, he'd be lying. Second one, he would think he was God. Lewis says, on the level of, of a man who calls himself a poached egg. And the third one is that he's, he's really the son of God. What's missing in the argument to me is you got to show that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. You can't just assume he was son of God. So for that, you go back and find what Jesus taught about himself. And a lot of times scholars, uh, they zero in on, on titles like son of God, uh, son of man, Christ. And to talk about what those words mean and did Jesus claim those? And then if you already established that he called himself deity, then you have to answer the question, why would that have, why would that have happened? Why would he have called himself that? And if he was raised from the dead, see, his, his answer is being raised from the dead was his answer to why we should believe you. When he was asked by people who didn't believe him, why should we believe in you? He said, because I'm going to show you the, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that's a pretty well-known response of his, because it's in his very early source behind the Gospels. So Jesus said the resurrection would be a sign that he was who he said he was, but we have to know, in order to make the argument work, we have to know what he, or I should say who, he said he was. And then you have to do your homework on what was he claiming about himself. Now, if you got that he said he's the son of God, He's either wrong because he was crazy, wrong because he was lying, or right because he was raised. Now the trilemma works a little bit better. But you have to do your homework on what, who Jesus claimed to be. Hmm. That's interesting. So I want to I want to close. I want to make things a little bit more relevant right now. We've we've gone over or a little more current, if you will. We've, sure. we've gone over all these arguments for the resurrection. We we talk about the abundance of evidence that there is that. Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, and, and all, of the, all of the evidence to support Christianity historically, empirically, and whatnot. Yet, there's still people who do not accept it. There's people who don't believe. Uh, one of my favorite convocations uh, at Liberty was when, you, uh, when Dr. Peterson, Jordan Peterson, came. Uh, oh, you were up yeah. there on stage. With, uh, you were up there on stage and, and you know, were, was asking him about it and said, referenced one of your articles, he referenced one of your articles that this might be the, one of the most profound things he's ever considered. Jordan Peterson's a brilliant man, one of the smartest people in the world, if you ask me. How is it that, why, why do you think it is that people don't accept, still don't accept this and, and despite the evidence? Yeah, to me, this is just, that, that question comes up so often. Let me, let me restate it and go like this. If the evidence is good as you say it is, and everybody accepts the evidence, how come not everybody accepts Jesus? In fact, there's an inverse problem here because you think the evidence is unbelievably good and the majority of the people in the world don't accept it. So what's the deal? Okay, well, first of all, just remember the argument. We're talking about what scholars say in the field about those facts. You go, well, they're not Christians either. Okay, good. Now that's a good, that's a good point. Now, now we're down to a good point. How come the guys that accept the facts don't accept the resurrection? And I often tell this little story. Um, let's say my best friend, let's say, and I, I do believe this, I believe that, that marriage is a great state to be in. If you have a happy marriage, you've got a good family, it's a wonderful way to be. And I think it's, uh, uh, you know, something that's 
pleasing to God and, and can be pleasing to us. But you could be my best friend and I could be concerned in my mind because I think it'd be nice if you were married, Addison, you know, you, you, you know, so on, so on, sorry. Are you married? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm only 20. Got a little more time. Oh, well, you're working. Okay. Well, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but let's say you're my best friend. And I go, come on, Addison. I know this gal. I want you to meet her. And look, I'm not making any promises. I'm just saying you've never met anybody like her. And you're going to be, I don't know. I hope you'll be head over heels, but at least you're going to say she is fantastic. And so you go, all right, I hate blind dates, but you know, we're good friends. I'll try it. And you go out to dinner or something. And you go out two or three times. And then later I see you and I say, how's it going? And you go, okay, I'll tell you one thing. She is the neatest young lady I've ever been with. She's the coolest person. I go, oh, good. Can I be your best man? And you say, no, 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 look, there's a, there's a gap in your argument here. She is the most wonderful woman I've ever been around. And she has become one of my best friends. But now you're assuming that marriage is, is the next step. It's what I want. And you can be good friends and not married. So I'm not ready to be married. Maybe 10 years, maybe never, maybe whatever. So best friend doesn't equal I do. Why? Because I do is a lifelong commitment. And we even say the words, better or worse, rich or poor, till death do, I part, till death do we part. And by the way, I think that's a pretty accurate picture of what faith is in the New Testament. Paul said, Paul says in the book of Revelation too, but Paul says, I married you to Jesus. I get to the Corinthian church. He said, I gave you to Jesus as his bride. To say I do is very serious. And, and it's not the friendship that people often say no to. It's the commitment that they say no to. Not everybody wants to be committed in that way. And we don't think they're wrong not to want to get married. We don't say that's, you know, that, that you're a loser because you don't want to get married. So people can always believe evidence and be really committed. And it can be on their front burner. I was just told by a skeptic just days ago that he is 100% convinced in religion and afterlife and God, some sort. And he's trying to figure out which one it is. The, the, the evidence can be good. That doesn't mean you're willing to say, I do. Hmm. In this case, I do to a person, to Jesus. Just like marriage, I do to a person. Hmm. That's fascinating. It's, it's, it's something that it's hard to, to wrap your mind around, you know, as a believer. It's something that's hard to wrap your mind around if you accept that, that Jesus died, that he was raised from the dead, if you accept that all this is true, and you accept the consequences that Jesus says there are, or that God says there are, for not believing, and, and you still haven't come to that conclusion yet, it's, it's, it's amazing to see. And, and one thing that Dr. Peterson brought up that, that I think is really, that has a lot of truth to it is, you know, is, Israel means he who, who struggles with God, and, you know, Israel is God's chosen people. And these are the same people that are, it's the illustration of these are the same people that are, that are struggling with him and that are wrestling with him. So it's really a, really a beautiful concept. But I want to close out talking about, you know, hope right now, especially with the coronavirus pandemic. There's a lot of doubt going on in the world right now. 
Uh, I read something the other day and that we've sold, there's been more sold copies of the Bible in one month of the pandemic than there has been in the past year, uh, which, really? yeah. Well, it's, stolen from where? I think, I think online copies sold uh, in general. It, I'm not sure if- Oh, I'm you said sure. sold. Oh, sold. I thought you said stolen. I thought you said stolen. No, no, no. More, more copies of the Bible sold in in one month of this pandemic than there gotcha. have been in the last year, allegedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could so be. Obviously, people are clamoring for answers. They're clamoring for hope. Uh, how 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 do we approach young people specifically? You know, a lot of this doubt is with a younger generation that's kind of growing up in a in a dominantly materialist, naturalistic worldview. How can we approach them them with the gospel and approach them with with the resurrection? Something that seems so, like such a bizarre concept. Yeah, let, let me answer. There's a there, there. Well, first of all, there's a bunch of things that are connected to the resurrection in the New Testament. There's over 300 verses New Testament, and it's connected to almost every area of theology and almost every area of practice in the Christian life. The one that it's connected to the most is that almost 20 times believers are told that they will be raised like Jesus. Your model for your resurrection, the fact that, you know, in the Middle Ages, people were buried in cathedrals or in cathedral graveyards because that was the center of life. Because in the New Testament, for example, uh, we're told over and over again, Paul says in Philippians, I want to make sure people understand of the 13 books that bear Paul's name, atheist New Testament scholars will grant seven of them. They'll let you use seven of Paul's books in your quotations. So one of them is Philippians 3. And Paul said, Jesus will change our vile body to be like unto his glorious body. Jesus will change our body of death into a body of life. Peter starts out, uh, in the epistle First Peter, the author says, you, got, you guys are going through persecution right now. But he says, take heart, rejoice. And you go, whoa, 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 what's wrong with this picture? Why are we rejoicing during persecution? Or why are we rejoicing during the coronavirus? Um, because, Peter says, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, and the resurrection has secured eternity for you. And he uses four Greek words that combined, they mean eternal life cannot be stolen, cannot fade away, cannot be taken from you. And one of the words is, it's garrisoned. This, your eternal life is protected in heaven. Nobody can take it from you. So what, what Peter's saying in context is, rejoice in persecution because you can be working now with a view toward eternity in the future. I tell people, uh, if you want to say that secularly, uh, we can jump on the yellow brick road right now, and we could be marching toward the Emerald City. And, and, you know, don't get distracted by the uh, the apple-throwing trees and the Wizard of Oz. Don't be, a, don't be distracted by the big guy with the axe who could cut you in pieces. Don't be distracted by the lion. Don't be distracted going through the deepest woods or coming out into the field of daisies or whatever they were, where they were being put to sleep. They have to keep persevering toward, it's sort of like Pilgrim's Progress, you know, they have to keep pursuing to the, the city. And that's the picture in Peter. It's not just, you've got it now, go do what you want, watch a football game, there's nothing else for you to accomplish in life. It's not that at all. It's because it's true in the future, what kind of people ought you to be now? And I took a break at lunchtime, I was watching the news, 
and they were saying that they are appealing more and more to young people to get involved with going into inner cities and areas where people need help and to be the ones to pass out food and to to take needs to people. And of course, you've probably seen the lines, huge long lines of cars that are waiting in line to get food handed out. And uh, so th that's, to me, Christianity says, because it's true out there, what kind of people ought we to be here? So to me, because there's a resurrection, because there's an afterlife, it should change everything. It should change everything about the present, and it should really change everything about what's going on in the life to come. That's awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming on, Dr. Habermas. has been really insightful and, and really great to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Addison. Enjoyed the time with you. Ask good questions. Appreciate that. Thank you.